The Dodero family were making um, musical strings over 300 years ago. There were there are records in Abruzzo region, which is where they were from, um, of them listed as string makers. Although most of the people in that region, if they were into sheep farming, because it's a very mountainous region of Italy, uh, probably made strings because as they slaughtered the sheep, you know, one of the uh, uses they had for the small intestines uh, was making strings. And I suspect that they probably got a lot more money if they made the small intestines into a sheep than into a sausage casing. So if you had the expertise to make strings, you did so. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family, in part two of my interview with Fan Dow, Director of Research and Development for the Diodario Musical Strings Company. I interviewed Fan when I visited Diodario's main production facility and headquarters in Farmingdale, Long Island, in 2015. In part one of this podcast, Fan talked about how he came to work for Diodario and the evolution of the violin string over the last 400 years. For part two, we will begin by learning about Fan's family and his own journey as both an engineer and a musician. Well, why don't you, just to put you in the picture, mm -hmm. uh, give me your story. Tell me about your, where you were born and really anything you can do going uh -huh. back in your family in terms of uh -huh. their involvement with music yeah. or things that you do today. Mm -hmm. Well, I was uh, originally born in Taiwan. And uh, I remember, you know, my... Um, the mother, my mother's side um, was very musical and uh, because my grandfather did Peking opera. I don't think professionally, but as, you know, as a, as a um, very serious um, amateur uh, musician. What instrument? I don't know what instruments he, he played, but I do remember he probably played several because um, one of my uncles, he played uh, multiple instruments um, and uh, he can play a scale on almost every single instrument. And several years ago, for example, he decided that he really wanted to um, play in the local community orchestra. But since he wasn't, um, he did not play any instrument at a high enough level, um, because um, you know he was not a professional musician, he decided, well, which instrument would be the easiest to get into the orchestra? Which happened to be one of the more difficult instruments to play, but there's very little competition. So he said, oh, well, Orchestras always need bassoonists. So he decided to learn how to play the bassoon really well. And after a couple of years, he got into the local community orchestra. Was that here in the United States? Yes, th this was uh, in, in, the, in, in Los Angeles. Um, so the musical sort of talents come from my mother's side. The engineering talents come from my father's side because I know my, um, my grandfather on my father's side was uh, a chemical engineer. And uh, my father was trained um, as a scientist, but also worked as an engineer. And I don't know too much about musical talents on that side, but I have a huge interest in both um, science and, and engineering and music. Um, since I started playing the violin uh, very young, I never studied uh, violin professionally, but I continued playing, uh, always played the violin um, even after um, I graduated from school and throughout my whole life. So this job that I have right now is um, by far the most interesting and fascinating job I've ever had because it um, combines all of my interests in music, science, engineering. 
Was there any stories in your family about uh, the, the revolution in, in China itself and Mao and, and how that impacted, or the Second World War, how that impacted your well, family? Well, some of it. Um, you know, my father, um, I remember, you know, he, uh, I think both of my uh, uh, families uh, were, parts of them were split, you know, by the, um, the revolution. Most of my media family are in the United States uh, or, you know, went to Taiwan. And, and in fact, many of them are also in the United States or Canada right now. But originally, my grandfather, my father's side, he was working in Taiwan, in, I think, during the, um, the revolution around 1949. And my father said that he, he, I think he had a teaching position in mainland China. And he was visiting his father in Taiwan. He had no plans to actually flee to Taiwan because he had a teaching position. But the, the nationalists collapsed so quickly that he didn't have an opportunity to go back to mainland China. So, um, so he ended up being in Taiwan. And that's, of course, where he met my mother because um, my grandfather on my mother's side, he was also a chemical engineer. So I think they lived in the same community. Chemical engineer community. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. So you were born in Taiwan, and yes. when did you come to the States? I came to the States in uh, 1966 because my father had gone to, um, uh, he, he got a PhD in Australia and then found a, a job as a research scientist in the United States. And so uh, our family came directly to the United States. We never um, went to Australia. And... Uh, so that was in uh, Wilton, Connecticut, where we settled and where I went to school and graduated from high school. When I interviewed Fan Dao, I learned that several of the artists we have interviewed for the Rosin the Bow project are part of the Diodario's roster of artists who use and recommend their strings. These include Daryl Anger, Michael Cleveland, Rashad Ingleston, and Mark O'Connor. Mark is fond of helicore strings for both playing folk and orchestral music. He also loves jazz, and here is Mark playing a short segment of a tune titled 7-3 for All from his music CD Full Swing.
Dodero family were making um, musical strings over 300 years ago. There were there are records in Abruzzo region, which is where they were from, um, of them listed as string makers. Although most of the people in that region, if they were into sheep farming, because it's a very mountainous region of Italy, uh, probably made strings because as they slaughtered the sheep, you know, one of the uh, uses they had for the small intestines uh, was making strings. And I suspect that they probably got a lot more money if they made the small intestines into a sheep than into a sausage casing. So if you had the expertise to make strings, you did so. And so um, about 100 years ago, um, two Dodero brothers came to the United States, I think settled in the Queens area, and they were making strings in their little shop. That was their family business. And uh, I think one of them got homesick, went back to Italy, but the other one stayed behind. And his son, um, John Sr., started the modern Diderio company. And there are still quite a few Diderios involved in the company at all levels, um, running the company. And, um, and the youngest Diderios now, they're all taking you know, violin and music lessons. And, and the family is committed to um, staying here in Long Island, making strings in um, our string factory here and keeping a family business. Because it's really a passion for them. It's not just a business of, of making money. It's, it's a passion. And it has to be a passion because it's a very difficult business to be in, to, to, um, to manufacture things in the United States. It's a huge challenge, but it can be done. Um, it's difficult, uh, but it's not impossible, but it requires huge commitments of time and resources. What are some of the issues that make it difficult? Just in terms of labor costs, materials, higher quality materials available in other places, yeah. government mm -hmm. policy? What are the kind well, of factors? Well, um, certainly, you know, labor costs and, and the huge amount of overhead, just the, the cost of doing business here in, in Long Island. So one of the things uh, we invest a lot of um, resources in is, is automation. And uh, all of our string winding um, equipment are all designed in-house and built in-house and they're um, amongst the most uh, sophisticated complex uh, string making machines in the world and uh, we're constantly building uh, new versions of them and updating them and putting improvements in it. We're also looking for other ways to automate um, all parts of our operation um, because there's still considerable uh, areas that are done by hand such as the silking that's put on violin strings the thread that's put on the ends of the strings to protect the windings. Um, that's still done mostly by hand now, but we're building a new generation of machines to do that automatically. And then we, um, about seven years ago, we started on a whole lean initiative. Uh, this is an outgrowth of the, um, the programs at, uh, at Toyota, a motor company. And the whole idea is to make our whole uh, manufacturing process more efficient and more lean because um, uh, strings and materials made um, outside the United States where labor costs so much lower has such a, a, a huge um, labor cost advantage. Uh, but there are other advantages or disadvantages in going outside um, the United States in, in manufacturing. And I know the Dodera family have seriously considered manufacturing outside Long Island, United States, but ultimately they decided it stay here in Long Island for a couple of reasons. One is, of course, quality um, is so important in this business. And, and it's a huge advantage having the factory 
right here, then you can um, be constantly on top of quality. Because if your factory is located remotely, then it um, starts to compromise the quality. Also, they're from this area. I mean, this is their home. So I think they're committed to staying here, and they've made huge investments. Um, they plow most of their profits back into the company, into new equipment, training, um, all of that stuff. One of the challenges we face in materials is that even though we're the, we're the world's largest uh, maker of strings and we use huge quantities of the materials for a string company, oftentimes the materials we use is um, a very small part of the materials that the manufacturer makes of that material. Uh, most of those materials are often made for a different application. So the properties of the materials are often optimized for other applications and not for our particular applications. So one of the challenges we face is trying to get the manufacturers of those materials to optimize the properties for our application. Sometimes we're successful, but oftentimes we're not. And, and so one of the trends um, we're seeing is that we become more vertically integrated. We are, over time, making more and more of our raw materials or our, our you know, upstream materials ourselves to gain more control over the, the quality and the consistency of the material. Um, also to develop new versions of the material because um, to develop new versions, the, uh, the quantities involved may not be um, large enough for another manufacturer to want to invest the uh, money and effort into develop versions for just for string use. And in some cases, you know, we've had to pay other companies to do so, but we decided, well, if we're going to pay them, why don't we just invest it in ourselves and then we'll, you know, have control over our materials and our own technology. So we're becoming more vertically integrated uh, over time. So how, does, um, how do efforts towards sustainability, towards environmental impact, mm -hmm. and those kinds of things now play into this because you're much more involved in the whole process? Yes. Well, I, I know that um, Jim D'Addario, uh, he's committed to... Um, Having sort of a what, what what's that called? Sort of a zero, um, uh, what's the term for it? A carbon footprint. Yeah, like a zero carbon footprint, uh, a factory, and and it's it's a it's a long term goal because you know it's a very difficult to achieve. But but he wants something like that, and and so uh, we actually have, um, for example, we we, we have a um, one of our um, facilities uh, managers who's uh, uh, an architect, trained architect. Tom and um, and he's that's one of his responsibilities is to figure out how to transition our facility into being much more sustainable uh, from a carbon footprint. Yeah, it's a tremendous challenge. Yeah, very yes. difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult. But Jim's committed to doing that, and uh, and I think it would you know not not from a cynical point of view, but uh -huh. in a very real way. It would play very well with your customer base. Yes, in uh -huh. many cases, I yes. think a lot of artists. Not all, but uh -huh. are are becoming very keenly aware of yeah. these things. The violin making world, mm -hmm. of course, as you're very involved right. in, uh, you know, is really looking at mm -hmm. all those issues mm -hmm. around sustainable mm -hmm. uh, woods that are being used for right. different things. And do uh, any 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 thoughts you have on that in your role in working with the Violin Society of America? What's well, I mean, <laughs> I do have some uh, you know opinions about certain things. I, for example, I, I know one of the um, subjects that has um, gotten a lot of recent attention is, uh, you know, bows and the role of, um, you know, ivory and um, materials such as that. 
from a much broader perspective, because of the work that I do in violin acoustics, is that um, you know, one of the challenges we face is that it's such a tradition-bound world we live in, where there, there, are very few, um, there are very few things in the world where the golden standard is something that was made 300 years ago. And, and violins and, uh, is one of them. And bows, you know, the bows of 200 years ago are considered the golden standards and uh, made by Tort and, and his colleagues. So to try to change things is, is very difficult. But I think it can be done. It's a generational thing. And I think musicians, if they have, um, if they're presented with equipment, whether it's violins, bows, or strings, that actually work better and make their lives easier, that allow them to express themselves more easily and more fully, um, they will be quite willing to, um, to adopt those things. And if you look at the history of um, violin equipment, you know, the invention of the modern tort bow and advances in string making, that's proven to be true, okay, even if it behaves or, or looks very different. And so I think the same thing can definitely um, occur with violins or bows. And uh, so with bows, I think in a certain sense, um, the bow makers have sort of shot themselves on the foot when they've tried to um, emulate the look, the exact look of an ivory replacement, because some of the materials they've replaced it with, and they've done such a good job that to the, um, a the average untrained observer, they can't tell the difference. You know, if I had been involved, I would have told them, make something that is completely different, so it's obviously not ivory, <laughs> even to the untrained observer. And, and the customs <laughs> official. Yeah, and the, and, and the customs official. And, and so I think the, the, the bow makers are finally uh, realizing this, that they did too good of a job initially with the replacement materials that, and, and their techniques. But I think that's part of the... Um, it, w it wasn't really their fault, is, is that the, the perception was that they, um, everybody wanted something that looked exactly the same. So Hello? you're doing a, a project. Are you, you're working, you said, with uh, Ned Steinberger? Well, we do a lot of work with Ned Steinberger, the company does. Yeah. What kind of initiatives? What kind of things? Well, Ned is an um, incredibly um, talented designer. And, and so, you know, some of the projects we've worked in the past, you know, have included um, um, special types of, you know, tuners for a guitar, tuners, both the mechanical tuners for the strings and also the, um, the electronic tuners, you know, for tuning um, your, your, your instruments. Uh, you know, he's worked on the, um, uh, the, the packaging design for that, you know, how it should look and function. He's worked on our capos and many other products oh. as well. Because I know he's, he's quite well known for like, mm -hmm. electronic violins and yes. boat instruments. Yes, that's, that's right. That's right. And, uh -huh. and uh, what, what do you think the future of that is? Well, I think that there are different types of violins, okay? The, um, what we think of as, we consider it as the traditional violin, and, and is, is really what I would call the, um, the, the romantic violin of the, you know, optimized for the repertory of the 1800s, okay? But um, there are other types of violins, and, and um, you know, there are violins optimized for playing non-classical styles. Violins optimized for amplified um, applications. Um, now we see the acceptance of a violin set up to play uh, repertory from 
300 years ago, set up more similar to the violins of 300 years ago. And, and even encroaching on 200 years ago, you know, a little, um, because remember the violin of 200 years ago is set up differently than, than now. And, and so I think we see more acceptance of different types of violins. And, but I believe it's, it's, it's a generational thing. You know, part of the whole generational thing is that, um, and I've done quite a lot of work in this area of research, um, not here directly at Diderio, but um, it's very close related in a lot of the extracurricular stuff that I do, um, is in, in violin acoustics research, especially um, research into old versus new violins and perceptions of, of uh, preferences on, on and, uh, old versus new violins. And, uh, and I, our studies show that one of the things we have proven is that, um, you know, there are many people who claim that, oh, you can tell, you know, an old violin from a new violin apart, you know, instantly. Uh, well, so far we have found no evidence of that under very um, tightly controlled uh, blind studies. And, and in fact, in, in, in our ex uh, experiments, it happens that, you know, both the experiments we did, a, a new violin happened to come out to be the most highly preferred instrument. Um, in, in both experiments. I, I do believe that today, modern makers are making instruments that are just as good as 300 years ago. They may be a little different, but they are just as good. They're, they're different in, you know, in slightly different ways. And so the, the most interesting areas that um, we're researching is to trying to um, quantify and understand um, differences between violins. Because I believe there are much more differences between violins, you know, uh, particular violins than necessary violins of different eras. I mean, there are huge variations in, for example, the, the work of Stradivari in terms of the actual acoustic uh, results. There are certain instruments that are much more preferred than others. I mean, look, some of the world's greatest violins are strads. Um, there, there's, that's not a myth. You know, there's, um, some people think that, oh, we're, we're trying to debunk the myth of strad. No, 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 we, we, we none of our experiments um, have, um, shown any collusion other than that strads are among the world's greatest violins. The real mythology, though, is that a lot of people think that they're unique, that there are, they're the only great violins, along with, of course, you know, um, Guarneri's, um, that modern instruments can't be as good as strads. But as far as we can tell, based on our studies, the very best of the new instruments are comparable to the great old instruments. As long as people are willing to put aside their biases and prejudices, I think the newer generation of, of players are willing to do that. They're, they're either willing and or forced to do that because they can't afford to play, you know, the, um, the strads. I think you'll see more and more players willing to play um, new instruments and, and thinking that they're just as good as strads. I think so, and I think that's my, my sense of things. Mm -hmm. And eventually, many of these strads will wind up being in investment portfolios yes. and yes. serving hold another... Right. right. Need, I guess, for people that are looking for something else. Well, they're antiques because they're um, they're limited number of them, and um, and many of them have great historical importance to them because they are associated with um, some of our greatest musicians and historical figures. That's where most of their value lies. And there's another thing that <laughs> you know I want to get off my chest, which is that um, um, there's a belief. You know, people say. Oh, you have to play the old instruments, otherwise they deteriorate. Okay, and that's why we have to play them. But the reality is that playing them deteriorates them. And the one thing you have to keep in mind is that, yes, if you don't play an instrument, generally 
it does deteriorate, but that deterioration is always reversible if you don't play them. Okay? But the deterioration that comes from playing them is usually non-reversible, it's permanent. And so we have a huge um, heritage there that I think we need to, to protect. And so I am definitely not in favor of, of taking these valuable instruments and then using them as um, concert instruments full-time, subject to the rigors of, of concert touring, because that puts a huge amount of deterioration into the instruments. And that deterioration is irreversible. Very well stated. We uh, interviewed Bruce Carlson, mm -hmm. and uh, it was, that was his opinion. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> because I've heard too many contrary, other contrary opinions, you know, they say, oh, they'll deteriorate if you don't play them. Well, yeah, yeah. And, uh, that's reversible deterioration. <laughs> and, and Bruce is officially uh, the uh, curator or pre uh, preserver of the, uh, the canon. Yes, yes, this is his responsibility. And, yeah. and I think um, he's, see, that's the type of uh, preservation that I'm sort of in favor of, you know, where, where um, that instrument is played on, on occasion. He, they take it out. So it's not permanently under lock and key and nobody can touch it. So people still play it, but it's, um, it's rationed out, you know, and, and um, it's, they don't give it to somebody so they can tour with it. And so I think he's, he's, he's struck the right balance there. Let's return to the music of Mark O'Connor performing on Diodario Strings. Here he plays a piece that he composed titled A Poem for Carlita. He's accompanied on the cello by Yo-Yo Ma and on the bass by Edgar Meyer.
Our visit with Fan Dao ended with Fan giving us a tour of the factory. Here's a part of that interview. So here now we're walking into our fretted uh, manufacturing area, which is where we make our guitar strings. And uh, you'll see that it's a bit different than our violin string um, setup. It's uh, because the volumes are so much higher here. And it's much more tightly integrated for efficiency reasons. And then here, a lot of the cost is actually in the packaging of the string. And so we have to really optimize the packaging aspect because if you look at the machines, they're winding a string in about 20 seconds, uh, which is very quick. Now these machines are ball ending machines. What they do is they take the core wire and then they make a little loop twist and put the ball at the end. Okay. And they're using a lot of hydraulics? Uh, actually, not so much hydraulics, but pneumatics. Um, a lot of these machines um, use air, compressed air to control them. It's a mixture combination of both um, uh, electric control and air control. So in the family, the uh, you have different members of the family that are involved in this. Are some of them just naturally more technical than the others? Well, yes. For example, Jim, Jim is highly technical. And so he's the inspiration for a lot of our machines. And uh, other members of the family are involved in different areas, either in sales or marketing or operations. I can't begin to imagine the numbers of musical notes that are going to be played by the stuff being created here. Yeah. <laughs> it's beyond uh, yeah. thinking about how many people are okay. playing a violin or strumming a guitar right. someplace. Yes, that's right. So now you can see um, this lady is operating, um, although she's actually operating two machines at once, each machine actually has um, what, two carriages. So she's actually, in effect, operating four winding machines at the same time. And all she has to do is to put the core in the machine and take it out. Because one of the things that we um, developed about a dozen years ago was how to start the wrap wire on the core. Because um, one of the things the operator has to do is, it's like threading the needle to start the, you, um, when you wrap the, the wrap wire around the core of the string, to anchor it, you have to stick it sort of through um, the, um, the loop so it gets anchored. And then you start the winding process. That's a manual operation. And uh, so we developed, it took us quite a few years to develop it so it worked reliably so that we do that insertion now automatically. So do you know what your fail rate is in terms of, uh, do you have a certain percentage of strings that that don't make it for some reason? Um, yes, we, we keep um, track of um, failure rates, um, and it, it depends on the particular string, and there are a whole wide variety of reasons for that. And, uh, and we used to make use of that information to try to improve our processes, processes and, and equipment. So uh, how easy or difficult is it to find the workers you need? Well, these factory workers, they're, um, they're mostly um, Dominicans and they're all, they know each other. There's a lot of relatives and many of them have worked here for a long, long time, for some of them for 30, over 30 years. And so um, we, don't, we don't have too much problems finding factory workers. 
I would say the challenge is finding um, other workers to work in product development and, and marketing and sales and, and um, the other um, positions. The difficulty isn't finding um, workers who are interested in working for us. Lots of um, people would love to work with, uh, for us. The, the difficulty is that it's, it's Long Island, and Long Island is a very um, um, expensive place to live. And, uh, and so, you know, trying to attract people to Long Island, and it's an island, so it's surrounded three sides by water. And, and so somebody, for example, who might live across the Long Island Sound in Connecticut, it could be only um, 30 miles as the crow flies who may want to work for us if they don't want to relocate to Long Island. It's, the commute is impractical. You know, there are practical issues such as that. Is any of this unionized, any of your workers? Uh, no, we, we, um, our workers are not unionized. Um, I think the, um, we treat them very, very well. And uh, so they haven't seen a need, a need to unionize. Uh, I would say that the family, the, uh, one of the things that um, they view is that it's, they have a responsibility for the workers. Uh, I, and I see that attitude very strongly. They don't view the workers uh, as just workers. Um, they feel a burden of responsibility that they're providing for all of their families. And so it's, it's a bit of a, maybe a paternalistic attitude, but it's a, it's a good paternalistic attitude towards the workers. They're doing packaging over there. Uh, turns out right now that uh, one of the biggest costs of um, making a violin string is putting the silking on. And that, that's the, um, the colored thread that's put on the ends of the strings to help protect it. And violin strings, the color that violin strings have, the silking on them, also identifies what strings, what companies have sold yes, them? Yes, that, that's correct. Now, today, we don't really need the silking on the ends to protect the ends. Because it, it used to be that the ends would, uh, can easily come off if you didn't protect them, let's say 100 or 200 years ago. Nowadays, we've developed ways so you don't need the silking. But uh, players still expect to have the silking on them. And at least for violin strings. You don't see them on guitar strings simply because they're too expensive to put on. But for violin strings, they still expect them, and so we do use them to identify the brand and which particular note the strings are. And we, they're still put together by, if you look at it, by hand, for the most part. It's a still a, a very hand-intensive operation. However, we, have, we are building new machines that um, will do this automatically. So is it is it a skill that these women I'm seeing it's mostly all women here uh, that they've developed? Yeah, uh, it's a skill that they, they develop. And um, the interesting thing is that um, a lot of the these operations of making strings, a human can still do it faster than a machine can. So why do we build machines to 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 do those things? Well, one of the main advantages of machine is that it can be much more consistent. And of course, you have to train these uh, women that for, 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 for the operators to make strings at a high, very high quality level and maintain it is actually quite difficult because they have to be trained and then they have to be, um, you know, 
concentrating all the time at you know maximum concentration. So with machines, we can control the quality much better, and we can make it much more consistent. So that's why we're constantly searching for ways of building machines to automate as much of the manufacturing process as possible. Uh, how many years uh, have? Let's see, how experienced are some of your uh, your silk? You call that the silk wine? Yeah. The, well, these are uh, people silk. Yeah, silkers. Silkers. Uh, that's the word. Silkers. Uh, well, a most of the. Um, um, our factory workers here that wine strings and silk have been working here for years and years and years and uh, so it does take um, I would say quite a bit of experience not something that they can do proficiently let's say in a couple of days or a couple of weeks and what what colors identify your string well it depends on the particular brand that we use and how many brands so we, are you creating well we, we have multiple brands we have brands such as um, Helicor, Proarte, um, Prelude, and our, our most of our top-of-the-line um, high-end strings for the, the, the high-end players, professionals, um, are under our Kaplan brand. Uh, now, one of the problems is that we actually we're running out of colors because between our you know competitors and all the other string companies and us, there's only a certain number of colors and color combinations that's available. And um, and there are not lots of nice color combinations that um, we would love to use, but are used by our competitors, and vice versa. <laughs> so we're actually beginning to see strings from different manufacturers with very similar color combinations. And it's becoming a bit confusing now. Yeah, I have a couple of strings on my violin that uh, you know I remembered when I bought them. I, I knew what brand it was. I just liked how they sounded. Yeah. And sometimes I have to remember, well, what was that string on yeah. my A or my D? Yeah. Okay. And then I'm looking at the color to decide yeah. that. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's right. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. You can learn more about the Rosin the Bow project and access additional podcasts by visiting rosinthebow.org. I leave you now with a quote from filmmaker John Lasseter. The art challenges the technology, and the technology inspires the art. <laughs>